Well, uh, we are in Numbers uh, chapter 7 this morning, and uh, this passage, uh, very lengthy actually, has a a number of uh, details regarding uh, the offerings that the leaders of the nation uh, give to the Lord. We're uh, going to uh, condense that as dramatically as we can. Uh, there, there are, there's a lot of repetition in uh, the offerings uh, that are given, and uh, we'll look at uh, why uh, they are significant and what it is the Lord was doing within them. So, Numbers chapter 7, uh, beginning at verse 1, uh, we say again, these are descriptions of the offerings of the leaders of the nation. It says, it came to pass... When Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, that he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings and the altars and all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's houses, who were the leaders of the tribes and over those who were numbered, made an offering and they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and 12 oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders and for each one an ox. And they presented them before the tabernacle. So this is all as we're going to see uh, in regard to how the uh, priesthood ministers before the Lord and these leaders of the nation are making provision uh, for the worship of the Lord. Uh, you look around our nation, and uh, you know we don't have uh, the same types of you know nobility and things like that that other countries have. They've based that in uh, you know the royal families and things of that nature, but. Uh, you know, there are those that are prominent within our culture. And unfortunately, we don't see them leading the people into the worship of Jesus Christ. Um, I've had conversations uh, with especially young people and uh, try to you know have these conversations about leadership. Uh, both in a negative and positive light. Uh, Some of us uh, have a natural uh, ability to lead others. Uh, The problem is if if you aren't focused on the right thing, then you're still leading people. It's just in the wrong direction. It's it's a a significant thing uh, to recognize that uh, what you do and what you say and the way you behave influences other people. If you can recognize that in your life, whether it's a large number of people or even a small number of people, if people follow you, then you are in fact responsible for where you're taking them. You know, it was... Tom Petty years ago that sang that song that said, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any road will lead you there. And that's really where a lot of our culture is at. They, you know, 
they they in the 70s the 60s and 70s some of you might remember that phrase you know where people would say i'm a seeker man and really what they meant was i'm a wanderer man you know they they didn't have any destination they were just meandering their way through life uh, you know my pastor wrote a book some years ago uh, called master mission mate and uh, you know it's a plan for especially young men's lives to firstly establish uh, who is it what is it that masters you and in that uh, you will discover your mission in life and then you can consider you know who your spouse might be in the process uh, if we're going to lead a family if we're going to lead anywhere it needs to be that our focus is upon Jesus Christ you consider uh, the places that our national leaders are leading us right now. I, you could just jump into all kinds of uh, far-fetched discussions about what it is they're doing with their positions and their authority, the direction that they're taking us, you know, the listless approach to life. It's really a terrible thing that we have so many people that uh, this nation looks up to, and then you discover the character of their life, and it's disastrous. You know the, the way the way that we look up uh, to uh, you know Hollywood stars, the way that we look up uh, to athletes, you know the way that we look up to even politicians. You know, David told us, you know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But you know, the person who's going to be blessed, have a happy and fulfilled life, his delight will be in the law of the Lord, the word of God. And in his law, he will meditate day and night. Those are the things you want to look for, is a person who, you know, these men here, as the leaders of the nation, just made a huge investment in making sure the nation is worshiping the Lord. Uh, you consider where they are in the wilderness and the limited supplies they have. You know, the, these aren't people established in a country uh, with a huge city and all kinds of industry happening and resources. They've taken their meager belongings and they've assembled what is here, and we discover in a very beautiful fashion, it isn't you know some hodgepodge of sticks piled together. They've got real artistry involved in what's going on, but they're investing in the insurance that the people who are following them are going to be worshiping the Lord. That, that's significant. When we set precedent like that, when our family, when our children can recognize, you know, my father, my mother, my parents have, you know, meager means and what they're investing their time in, what they're investing their resources into is directing their family towards worshiping Jesus Christ. That's significant. It's very significant in the grand scheme of things. So, here, uh, you know, it came to pass, we saw these furnishings, utensils, the leaders, the uh, heads of the father's house, who were the leaders of the tribes over those 
who were numbered made an offering. They brought uh, the offering before the Lord, six covered carts, as we had read. Verse 4, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these from them, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites, two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. Four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service under the authority of Ithamar, the sons, or the son of Aaron, the priest. But of the sons of Kohath, he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things, which they carried on their shoulders. Uh, this has a lot of significance, uh, both here presently and later in the nation of Israel. Uh, you have uh, this sort of image that God isn't going uh, to have, uh, you know, animals and carts and, uh, you know, things that weren't created in his image, things that were fashioned by man's hands, carrying uh, the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstand and the things that were used in the actual acts of worship. The carts and the way they're used by the other portions of the tribe transport the tabernacle, the building, the tent, the framework. Uh, that's all fine with the Lord. As to the things that are actually engaged in receiving the sacrifice and directing worship to the Lord, those are going to be carried on the shoulders of the men who lead the worship. They're going to bear them on their person, on their frame. It's not going to be assigned to some other thing to handle the load. And that's, you know, very picturesque of our relationship with the Lord. The, the tendency, and, and we need to be clear about this, right? The natural tendency, we hear that in our culture, and, and that becomes a justification of things. You know, somebody's doing something that's terrible and our culture will say, well, it's only natural. And that's very true. It is only natural. But there are many things that are only natural, which are incredibly evil. People don't recognize that because they, they function from the assumption that one, we've all evolved. And then two, that we're all basically good at birth, okay? Uh, children are certainly beautiful and cute, right, at birth, but they are some wretched little people, man. There's a filthy, rotten little sinner. You hang out with those kids. They will steal. They will lie. They will manipulate. They will conjole. They, they will be filled with rage. If they had the ability, they'd kill you. Over something as simple as a cookie. I'm not even joking. They're just, you think I'm making light of it. Have you seen these little rage monsters when they finally lose their mind? You know, they've wanted it. And now it not only, I mean, they had their heart fully set on it and you've taken it away. 
from them. And they flip out and scream and turn red and fall down and writhe on the floor. And just imagine if they could load a weapon and deal with you. You know what I'm saying? I just uh, there would be you. Have, they'd have a cookie for sure. You know. There, there's a terrible thing, according to the scripture, that is birthed into the heart of every human being as soon as they enter this world that needs to be trained and corrected and taught and guided to the proper places. You know, things that are only natural. Religion, right? God gives us these mandates, lays out all kinds of principles in the scripture, and from our own nature, we create religion. We, we, we turn it into a system. We turn it into a method. We extract God from it, and we just make a number of steps out of the process, and we lose the relationship in those steps and in those efforts. It's a really terrible thing. Marriage should teach us a lot about our relationship with God. It, it is something that the scripture uses as a reflection of the relationship with God. You know, Paul the Apostle talks about the relationship of Jesus Christ with the church as a man with his wife. You know, you know we're told that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Relationship. Uh, having an opportunity to counsel couples over the years, I have watched people turn it into ritual and routine many, many, many times. You know, the complaint is, you know, he never says he loves me anymore. <laughs> you know, you talk to him, he's like, I say it all the time. Yeah, I bought her flowers. I did the thing. I mowed the grass. I fixed the, I built the, uh, you know, he, in his mind, right? Ah, but there's some connection that's lost. No, no longer is it personal. There's simple steps that are being taken. There's an insincerity that needs to be corrected. The Lord wants his priests and those that lead worship to have direct contact. This doesn't get put on a cart. This doesn't get tied on with ropes. This doesn't just get hauled to the next location and unloaded by the roadies and set up. You know what I'm saying? This, this needs to be handled by his own people that are going to be leading the worship, the ones that are going to be engaged in the process. The nation of Israel loses touch with the Lord. They go through a series of sinful failings as they go into idolatry, and they come to a place where they demand of the prophet Samuel and God that they be given a king. God has been their king. God has led them. They've been different than all the other nations. And now they're demanding. We, they literally are saying we want to be like the other nations. They all have kings. We have no king. All we have is this God. How, how remarkable is that? When you consider all that God has done for them. As personal as God has been with them. They want that symbolism in place. 
And they demand, God says, okay, I'll give you a king. I'll give you exactly what you want. He'll start out humble. He'll be impressive in appearance. He'll be bigger than everyone else, head and shoulders above everyone else. Everyone else's head came to his shoulder, literally. He towered above the other people, Saul. And he turned into a tyrant almost immediately. Who lorded over them and taxed them, brutalized them, forsook them. He was a terrible king. Exactly what all the other nations had. A terrible man leading them, ruling over them. And his heart departed from the Lord to the place where he was completely disobedient to God and idolatrous. To the point where he's off seeking Right? Witches, literally, to perform seances, to, you know, communicate with the dead by the time it's done. And God has rejected him and chosen another man, David, whose heart is after the Lord. But the, the reason they had Saul was because as a people, they had departed. So God said, I'll give you exactly what you've asked for. And they get to the place where they take this Ark of the Covenant into battle as though it's their lucky rabbit's foot. Literally. <laughs> when we've got the Ark, nothing can conquer us. And the Philistines conquer them and capture the Ark. And they take it back to the Philistine territories. And there in the Philistine territories, it brings plague to everywhere that is settled. Until the Philistines are saying, you know, maybe these plagues we're experiencing are actually associated with this ark. Because everywhere we put it, we experience these terrible things. So let's find out if this is actually what's going on. And they take the ark of the covenant because they don't know the Lord. And they do this exact opposite thing. They put it on a cart. And they attach it to cows that have recently given birth, who have nursing young. And the challenge spiritually is, if these cows walk away from their young, which is against nature, and just head towards Israel, we'll know God wants his ark back, and that's the source of, of our plagues, and sure enough, these cows are in so much pain because they want to nurse, their udders are swollen, and they want to give that milk to their young, but they're compelled by the Holy Spirit, and they leave their young on their own, not being led by anyone, and go straight to Israel. And the ark arrives on the cart, tied down in Israel. They're all overjoyed. This has been years. They take the cart and they put it into a house and it remains there. And there's great blessing upon that house. David remembers the ark and the fact that it needs to be brought back into Israel. And so he makes a tragic mistake. He imitates the Philistines. He gets another cart and he goes to the house and he puts the ark on 
the cart the same way that the Philistines had, and he starts to bring it back into Israel, and they hit a pothole, and it tips, and a man standing there thinks that the ark is going to fall off, and he reaches out, he's not a priest, and he touches it to steady the ark, and he's struck dead right there in the moment. David's horrified. They house the ark again, and this time David goes to the word of God and says, now how is it that we're supposed to handle the ark? Because apparently if you put it on a cart, and you touch the thing, it could kill you. You see, if we take the worldly methods of religion and the sinful methods of our own heart, and we don't inquire of the word of God, and we approach and touch worship, there's something very deadly in the process. It must be that we each personally are carrying this thing on our own shoulders. The daily, we're doing what Jesus described of denying ourselves, taking up the cross daily, worshiping him, finding him, knowing him. This, is, this imagery is thick right here as to how the worship is supposed to be handled by those who worship him. We cannot take a worldly, sinful, natural approach to worshiping God. you got to go at this thing with some fear, you guys, literally. If you're hearing this right now and thinking, I don't, I don't know how I'm handling it, then you've got to leave and literally with fear. You say, I don't know if I like that. Fearing God? Aren't I supposed to be filled with love with the Heavenly Father? Yeah. You are. You're also supposed to be afraid of him. He holds life and death and eternity in his hands. The scripture tells us, again, right? How, how do you handle the ark? you got to go to the word of God and find out. How do you handle your relationship with the Lord? you got to go to the word of God and find out. Not your opinion. Not the opinions of the world. I haven't checked recently, but just a couple of years ago, surveys that were conducted here in America said the greatest religious leader, the greatest spiritual leader in America was Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, we all say right there. <laughs> That's the opinion of this nation. We can't look to the opinion of this nation and follow we can't follow what they're putting out, for example. We must follow the word of God. The word of God says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Our opinions don't matter. Well, they do matter, right? Because they're wrong. That's significant. Our opinions are wrong. Hey. Hear this, right? Jesus, the, the greatest section of Scripture you could possibly read, right? If somebody told you you could only keep one section of your Bible, please choose Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaching, right? At the end of that, right, because he goes through a whole process 
where he takes all of the, or the prominent teachings of their religion and he says over and over again, you've heard it said, but I say, you've heard it said, you know, in your synagogues, your churches, amongst your religious belief systems, you've heard it said, but I say, he corrects the incorrect understanding of God and faith and religion. For three chapters, it's really not that long. You've heard it said, but I say. And then it records that when he was finished speaking, the people were astonished. Why? Because he spoke as one having authority. Having authority. The most blatant example I've ever had of this was working with a board of ministers from this area a number of years ago, working together collectively in a ministry. And as we're making decisions about different things, it began as we were formulating our bylaws and we're establishing the rules of conduct for the leadership and those involved in the ministry. And they're coming up with simple questions. And there's great debate because there's so many people involved. And then they would say to me, like, so what do you think? And I'd say, well, it really needs to be like this, depending on what we're talking about. Why, why do you say that? And I would, like, read from the scripture what was said on the subject. And literally on two occasions, they said, where did you get that? Uh, right here in Matthew? Right here. Because... They're not grounded in the word. These are ministers from our community who don't know what the word of God says. I'm not mocking them. I'm saying this is a natural deterioration. Every single culture in the world has experienced it. Departing from it. The return to the word of God. That's where the answers need to come from. You say things definitively, and the culture around you is going to be shocked by the way you say things with an absolute authority. Why? Because it's based in God's word. It's not based in your opinion, right? Your opinion may even contradict it. Your own personal opinion might be the exact opposite of what the word of God says. But if you're submitted to the word of God, you'll confess what the word of God says and demand that you yourself live by it and those that you're leading live by it also. Here, they're not to put this thing on a cart. They're to carry it upon their shoulders. Now, the leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the altar for the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offering one liter each day for the dedication of the altar. And the one who offered his offering on the first day was Nashon, the son of Minadab from the tribe of Judah. Now, this is significant in a few different regards. We're going to see a little later as we continue in weeks ahead that when the tribes move, the tribe of Judah moves first. When the ark uh, or when the, the uh, presence of the Lord 
ascends up off the tabernacle where the ark is, the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud, and it begins to move, the tribe of Judah is to move first. Jesus Christ descends from the tribe of Judah. So it stands to reason that the tribe of Judah is going to lead out in these givings of offerings, in their movement as a nation, as a people, they're going to be led by the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver platter. Here, King James says, you know, a charger. The weight of which was 130 shekels. One silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, because uh, the shekel varied over time, and it varied depending on if you were talking about the merchant's shekel or the shekel of the sanctuary. So here they clarify. Uh, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering. One gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, which was to be built or assembled from the ingredients and the method the Lord had prescribed. One young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering. One kid of the goats as a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of of Aminadab. Now, you can spend the time on your own going through the detailed explanation of this, the longest chapter in Moses' five books, as it describes each one of the families and their headship, their leadership, and who they are, as they offer the same gift from each tribe. They give the same measurement to the Lord in their offering and in their service to the Lord and their service to worship. Each of them, according to their days, they go through the process of giving to the Lord in this way. It's a beautiful thing to see that they all gave substantially as a tribe, from the things they had, again, in limited resource. They gave to the Lord and made sure that the people saw that they were dedicated to worship in this way. Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, we're familiar with. It reads, they said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. So the religious leaders were trying to entrap Jesus. They were trying to find any way to create a circumstance where he would say something dumb so that they could then accuse him of something he hadn't even done. So the people at this time in history, really hated paying taxes. I know we don't mind it anywhere near as much today. It's, you know, a joyous thing that we all participate in, some of us several times a year, you know. But they were particularly out of sorts about it because being Jewish, they had a great sense 
that their relationship with God was being violated by paying their taxes because Rome was an invading army that was occupying not only their land, but their freedom of religion. So they hated paying the taxes. So they came to Jesus and said, tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes or not? So, you know, anytime someone puts pressure on you <clears throat> to answer instantaneously and they only offer you two choices in your answer, yes or no, you know, things like that. You know, calling you up right now in the middle of dinner to see if you want to buy this new insurance for, you know, this much money or, you know, settle all your credit card debt or who knows what. Enter their religion, enter their cult, you know, high pressure sales. They take Jesus and say, we're supposed to pay taxes or not. Jesus just responds this way. Show me the coin. Whose image is on it? Caesar's image is on it. So it's Caesar's money. So we don't have our own money. We're not negotiating with our own money. It's Caesar's money. So give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God. More significant in the discussion is give to God the things that are God's. If your mind just went to money, that's not what Jesus is talking about, nor is it what I'm talking about. Whose image is on the coin? The government, right? Caesar's image is on the coin. Hey, brothers and sisters, who image, whose image is on you? You were created in God's image. Your very person, your very frame, your very existence bears the image of God. It, it only stands to reason that we would render to him our very lives. Our very lives. Giving to the Lord the things that he had given to us. You understand? Part of what Jesus is saying to these people about giving, right? We just watched these leaders of the nation give tremendous gifts to the act of worship so the whole nation could witness, right? The leaders of our nation are seriously dedicated to worshiping the Lord. If they're going to follow that leadership, then they're going to be doing the same things with their lives. They're going to be giving substantially of themselves to the worship of the Lord. The example has been set. The precedent has been set. The people of Israel, when Jesus was asked the question in Matthew chapter 22, they were allowed to buy, sell, and trade without using Caesar's money. Then they can avoid the tax altogether. They don't, they don't have to use Caesar's money, right? You can give your chickens to the guy and get whatever you need back. It minimizes how much. There's a way, right? There are ways for them. Uh, you know, they've got the money and they're saying, we don't want to give back to Caesar the very thing he's given to us. That's why Jesus says, whose money is it? Right? I hear Christians talk, I don't want to pay taxes. This government wicked. They just, you know, child abortion. They got wars all over you. Okay, listen. <clears throat> Are you going to call the fire department if your house is on fire? Because if you're not, then maybe I'm with you. <laughs> right? 
If you wake up and some burglar's breaking into your house, you're going to call the police? I mean, if you're not, then, you know, maybe you don't need to pay taxes. When you head to work, are you going to, you know, have your own road? Right? Does it, I was going to say, you know, are you Ross Perot? There's a whole bunch of people in the room that are like, who's Ross Perot? <laughs> All the old people just laughed. You know what I'm saying? Ross Perot built his own road so he didn't have to pay taxes. Build a road. Yeah, I mean, you build your own road from your house to work and ride on your road and you don't you don't have to pay taxes to build the roads there's a whole bunch of things we use and do all the time that are built maintained by the government we're told right to honor those in authority over us the the bigger question is are we worshiping the lord with the thing that bears his image are we serving him with our person and with our frame, with our very thoughts, our very eyes, our very hands, and our very feet? Are they, are they working for the Lord? You know, I, I hear Christians whining and complaining about how to pay taxes, and, and they're not simultaneously rendering to the Lord. I think that the rebellion against the taxes is actually a confession about the rebellion against the Lord. Not serving the Lord. Consider, consider what Jesus is saying there of how we can serve him. Within this giving... We see in Numbers chapter 7, there's another picture. Matthew chapter 20. You might want to turn there with me. I'm actually going to pick up at verse 12, but it's the whole passage from Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 1, where there's a vineyard owner, and he needs people to work in his vineyard, right? Now, the scripture tells us that the world is the harvest. That the people in the world are what the Lord wants to harvest. He gives that to us several different ways. He talks about the grain field, right? He's there with a woman at the well, and the disciples have left, and they've gone to get lunch, and they come back, and here come the people, and Jesus says, right, the harvest is ready or plentiful, white, Right? The grain is white and ready to be harvested, and we need workers to go into the field and harvest people into the kingdom. Out of the world, which is you know filled with sin and destined for hell, we need to harvest people out of the world and into our kingdom. We need workers that are willing to go harvest for the Lord. We hear of the, the world and people being referred to as a vine and the grapes that are harvested as being people and souls. We see in the book of Revelation that the Lord talks about the angels going into the world and thrusting in their sickle and harvesting souls out of the vine of the earth. Jesus gives this illustration in Matthew chapter 20 of a man who needs workers to go into his harvest and glean back for himself. And he hires men first thing in the morning. And they go into his field and he comes back into the market and he finds men at noon. 
who are standing around doing nothing. And he says, you know, were you looking for work? I'm paraphrasing. And he hires them and sends them into the field to work. And he finds men at the end of the day who are still unemployed. And he says, do you want to work? And he sends them into the field. And when they finish the day, he comes and he pays each of them the standard wage of a Daenerys for the day's work. And the complaint comes. Matthew chapter 20, verse 12, these last men have worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden, the heat of the day. He answered one of them and said, friend, am I doing, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. And here's the punchline. I wish to give to the last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? So the last will be first, the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Oh, I want to be one of the chosen. Respond. That's all it takes. Respond. Uh, if you hear people acting like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so, they do such-and-such for the Lord, so-and-so, you know, they're all churchy, so-and-so, they call themselves a Christian, but, you know, I just can't seem to get in. I can't seem to, you know, be accepted by the Lord. You absolutely can. John 3.16 is the summary of the entire Bible. The entire Bible. That's really the only verse you need to know. I mean, you want to talk about a universal knife, a universal tool, a universal verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's our message right there. Salvation. Come to the Lord as you are. So many people say that that silly thing, right? Oh, you're right. I need to go to church. I need to get right with the Lord. I've heard it all my life. I've come to agree with it. But there's just a few things I've got to get straightened out right now. No, there isn't. That's the whole point of coming to the Lord, right? No matter what they tell you, I'll let you in a secret. Every single person in this room has not gotten those things right. The Lord may have gotten them right somewhere along the way, right? Those things may have been corrected in their life, but the people in this room didn't get those things right. And if you're sitting there right now offended by that, that just proves all the more you didn't. Because you're convinced somehow that you did. God is the one who works in us. His spirit is the one that works in our hearts and minds and changes us. Surrendered to him is all it takes. That's it. I had a conversation with a man years ago. I had discovered I was trying to find the angle to deliver the gospel message into his life. And I discovered in the process of searching for that angle, that he had already surrendered his life to Christ. Well, then I was perplexed because he's not in church anywhere. 
He's not in fellowship anywhere. He's not doing anything about his relationship with the Lord. So I quietly find a moment privately to say, hey, what's up with that? You know, I know that you're making these professions of faith and you're telling people that you are a Christian. There was this moment, but why is it that you're not involved? And the summary of the thing in the end was, I don't know why. And I said, well, what happened? And he told me. I was a pretty terrible person, professional, military background. And there came a moment where I heard the gospel, and I surrendered my life to Christ. I prayed the prayer. I was baptized. He said there was a dramatic change in my life. Dramatic change. And I'm like all excited up until that point in the conversation. And then he said, but I got busy. And as we talked about it, that's all it was. He got busy. And it crowded out his life. When I first came to the Lord, I went to the man that was discipling me and I was distraught because I kept falling and failing. And he listened to me at length, and some of you have heard this story and illustration before, but while we're talking, we're standing in his kitchen, and he's just listening very patiently. And when I get done, he looks over, and there's this old black iced coffee that's like a day old sitting on the counter right there. Got a few sips taken out of the top, and it's just waiting to be poured out and then the cup thrown away. And he takes the lid off that, and he takes the cup, and he sets it down in the sink, and he just turns on the water a little bit. So it's now running into the blackness of that coffee. Then he says, that's you, man, right there. And that's what you need to do with your life. And while we're talking, it's already reached the top, and it's started to overflow. He said, the problem is you keep taking yourself out from underneath it. You need to let this continue to flow into your life. And now that we're talking, it's like halfway clear. And before he can finish his illustration, it's just clear water running over. And he summarized, the problem is you pull yourself out from underneath what the Lord is doing. And then you fill back up with all the junk. You got to keep yourself in the place where all of this keeps flowing into your life and it displaces all of the things that need to go. And even once it's displaced everything, you need to stay underneath that continuous flow. Jesus Christ, there at the feast in the last day, yelled, according to the scripture, in a shrill voice, as the priests are bringing big basins of water up as part of their worship, and they're pouring basin after basin after basin of water out, Jesus yells in a shocking way, if anyone thirsts, <laughs> let him come unto me. I'll give him living water. Right? It'll become a torrent of living water that will pour out of you. Our danger is 
we turn it into religion. We depart from the relationship. We systematize everything. Is that a word? Until the relationship's gone. It has to remain sincere. Verse 89 of Numbers chapter 7 says, Now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, see that capital H, that's referring to the Lord. He heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you arrange the lamps, the lamps, seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. There's a lot more that the Lord says to Moses and to Aaron about how those lamps are supposed to be arranged. And it has a deep spiritual significance regarding us being the light of the world and how we are to illuminate the world. But most significantly for us as we end this morning is the fact that, number one, Moses heard from the Lord. And number two, the place where he heard from the Lord was at the mercy seat. Not the judgment seat, not the judgment throne. It's at the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Where the blood of the sacrifice is poured out. That's where Moses heard from the Lord. Listen. People say things. And I'll address Facebook watchers directly. Right? People say things like, I find God in my own way. I find God in nature. Right now, a number of people have begun to say to me, I really, I really like the whole Facebook thing. I'm glad we're doing that. That's all good. You know, finding God in a personal way, finding God in creation, seeing his fingerprints and his majesty, unable to come, having this resource. That's, that's good. But there's a commandment in the scripture, a commandment that says we must assemble together. We must. Even in the confrontation of saying, do not forsake the gathering together of the saints as some have done. And all the more as you see the day approaching. The implication is as the day approaches, the temptation is going to be stronger and stronger. Look, this is just the dry run, you guys. This is just the dry run. <clears throat> this isn't even the real deal. Right? Got to wear a mask. Someday you're going to have to bear a mark. And right now, if this type of restriction is keeping... You guys understand that everyone in this room, you have... I've, I've talked to people this week that six members of their family have had COVID-19. Six members of their family. Five of them said it was like a mild cold. Like a mild cold. One of them said it was like flu-like symptoms. 
You have a 98, according to what I looked up this morning, you have a 98.86 chance of surviving COVID-19. You know what the average age of those passing away from COVID-19 is? 78 years old. That's way up in the age bracket. Compromised immune systems, all kinds. Fear. Fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. How did we get here? Well, we were in numbers and now we're all the way over. There's a commandment in the scripture as to how to worship the Lord and it's being disobeyed. If, if, if it's as simple as those priests do not put that ark on a cart. They carry it on their shoulders. The mercy seat, the mercy seat alone on top of that ark weighed 700 pounds. Not the rest of the ark. That's a lot of stuff to put on your shoulder. You know what I'm saying? Especially when God says, see that raging river right there in front of you? That's potentially, the point that they were at is, is potentially half a mile wide at flood stage. I want you to put this 800 plus pound box on your shoulder, weighed in. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of fear and a lot of temptation. To avoid the very things that are said in the scripture. My, listen, if it feels like condemnation, it's not. It's encouragement. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. To come and be part of the fellowship and let the Lord bless your life. Bless your life. Remember, remember those of us that are here, the weeks, the months... We spent apart from one another. And the first time you walked back in the door and the relief and the joy of seeing one another. I got to tell you, as a pastor, right? I started in the ministry in really 1989, but started teaching the word in 95. And I became a senior pastor in 2002. I've been at this a while. My biggest regret in all those years is not being here for Resurrection Sunday. This year. That's my, in all my years, that's my biggest regret. Listening to the nonsense and not opening the doors and being here for Resurrection Sunday. There's going to be more occasions where they demand of us. This is, this is them taking a dry run at how much control. You know, fascism? This is fascism. It's not a, like, go home, get your dictionary. All right, what am I saying? Yeah, look it up on your phone. <clears throat> Expose my age all the time. <laughs> look up the definition of fascism. This is what we are presently experiencing. Christ has not given us a spirit of fear. He's not given us bondage. He's given us deliverance and peace and freedom, right? He who the Son has set free is free indeed. 
Let the Lord lead you into his ordinance of worship. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Extra credit, you can read Numbers chapter 8. There will be a quiz. No, there won't. Although you'll be tested on it. Father, I thank you very much for your love and your grace. And I ask that you would pour your spirit out on us in such a way that if there is condemnation in anyone's heart and mind, watching this online, you know, here in this room, that would just be taken care of by you, removed. That instead it would be replaced with joy and freedom and fulfillment. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you've recorded and ask that you would work these things out in our hearts and minds, that we could live according to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.